Hi everyone. Welcome back to China in the Caribbean, a podcast about the growing economic, social, and political relationship between China and the Caribbean. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Jeremy Goldcorn, the editor in chief of SubChina and the co-founder of the fantastic Sinica podcast. We had a wide-ranging conversation about Wolf War diplomacy, CCP thinking, and how to do nuanced China watching, among other things. I had a great time talking with Jeremy, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. In the last few months, we've been seeing this intensification of wolf war diplomacy from China, and I find it very confusing. It's not like China is some far-flung tiny space in the east. It's by some metrics the biggest economy in the world. So, why do you think the CCP is kind of promotes this wolf war diplomacy? And strategy as a way to actually engage in foreign policy. Well, I think there are lots of factors behind that. I think, on the one hand,、uh, although you know you often hear people say, "Well, you know, Chinese people are actually better informed about global affairs than the average American," and you know you hear this praise of China's technocratic. You know, elite the the cadres who are you know very well educated and make decisions、uh, based on you know scientific methods and th- this kind of thing.、Uh, but when it comes to understanding other cultures, the average、uh, Communist Party member, at least one with any power, has never really spent any significant time with any foreigners. You know, even if you think of somebody like Xi Jinping, who you know. Went famously to America as a young man, and you know stayed with her family, you know in the heart of corn farming,、uh, you know the heart of the United States. But I mean, come on, it was a an official visit. It was completely artificial. You know, there was no real relaxing going on. It's not as though you know Yang Xi went out the back with his. Uh, hosts teenage son and smoked a joint and you know got to know the way American teenagers think or anything. The whole thing was stage managed from first to last, and he's never spent time,、uh, you know, outside of his own culture.、Um, you know, contrast that with many people in senior levels、uh, of government, not just in America but you know all over Africa and the Caribbean, who've you know lived for many years, often outside of、uh, their own cultures and countries.、Um, so I think on the one hand,、uh, you do have、uh, China's you know diplomats uh, are, are in fact not very. Cosmopolitan. I mean, even the relatively smooth ones, like the the ambassador to the United States, Sui Tiankai. I mean, he's not somebody that the average diplomat from another country would necessarily want to invite over for a glass of wine or a beer or a whiskey late one night.、Um, so, so they they don't have a great understanding of.、Uh, 
the emotions uh, they don't have a great understanding of tone and language and you can see this all over twitter they're you know very ham-handed attempts to either be charming or to be intimidating i think that's one factor i think the other factor is that it comes straight from the top xi jinping made it very clear shortly after you know he became supreme leader in, in 2012 at the end of 2012 that uh, deng xiaoping's maxim of uh, um hiding your light, hiding your strength and biding your time was over. It was now time for China to project itself more assertively on the world stage. And I, I think this is part of it. Um, and I think uh, the third, I think, uh, most important factor, and I would still say there are others, uh, but, uh, you know, I've mentioned the lack of sophistication of, of, of Chinese diplomats, this new I mean, it more or less is a policy, if not a policy, it's an attitude under Xi Jinping of China being a lot more assertive. Uh, the third factor is that um, it works. Um, uh, you know, the point of this business with Australia, uh, I mean, you know, China can afford to sour up its relationship with Australia. It's not going to do it a great deal of harm. Uh and it has the very useful effect of showing other small countries what they can expect if they sufficiently annoy uh, the Communist Party of China, which is, you know, a real disruption to their trade and any other normal activities. Um, so I think that uh, from their point of view, uh, uh, such displays have worked in the past. If you think of uh, the treatment uh, Norway got after uh, the um, literary critic and dissident and uh, author of uh, political manifestos, Liu Xiaobo, uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, that wasn't a Norwegian government decision. I mean, you know, they, they have no control of it, but that didn't stop uh, the Chinese government from basically freezing Norway uh, diplomatically um, doing the same thing they're now doing to Australia with Norwegian salmon and other uh, imports from Norwegian, just basically putting their ties on ice for many, many years. And the Norwegians had to, um, uh, you know, really make a statement that they would, you know, not piss China off again uh, to enjoy the uh, relative normalization of ties. Uh, uh, and, you know, it took many, many years. Um, and, uh, you know, Norway has been a, a lot more careful, I think, what it says about China since then, and other countries have taken note. So um, it may be unattractive, uh, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work. Yeah, so that brings me to uh, another point. So there's a paper written by David Moser a few months ago, where he discussed the problem of the information asymmetry between the US and China. But the way he framed it seems to me a bit weird because he framed it in terms of a media consumption where because Chinese, young Chinese people uh, or Chinese people in general consume more American media than vice versa, then somehow the Chinese people tend to understand a bit more about America. Uh, I'm not sure. I think I fall more in the camp with Eric Olander, who on a previous episode made the point that I think is true, where the persons who actually studied China in the US that are involved in the policy 
um, departments, they understand China a lot more than their Chinese counterparts do America. So I guess I'm wondering why is it that the diplomatic arm of the CCP that you know isn't actually getting a lot better at this? Is it because they're so new to the game of foreign policy on this major scale that they have now to kind of adopt new habits and training to understand other countries like like America in a more uh, a more nuanced way? No, I think it's because the Communist Party is a highly secretive organization and anyone who uh, gets any kind of power gets sort of funneled into this life and lifestyle where they don't really have any kind of life outside of the Communist Party and of their government activities. Um, so anybody uh, with a the necessary, necessary open-mindedness to... Uh, become truly uh, familiar with another culture, you know, those kind of people tend not to work for the Chinese government, I think. Um, so, you know, you, you have extraordinary, you know, you have Chinese people who write for the New Yorker, you have Chinese people who uh, write uh, prize-winning novels in the English language, uh, uh, the you know uh, it's not that there's something in Chinese culture that doesn't allow um, an understanding of 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 you know foreign countries and foreign cultures at all, but I think the Communist Party's own um, incentives discourage people like that. Um, I mean, it, there's only a certain kind of person. I mean, you know, if you if you think of somebody like Yan Xiaotong, who's a, you know a famous Chinese, the most famous Chinese international relations scholar, who is you know described sometimes as a liberal, um, and you know in, in Chinese context, and is a you know uh, an internationally educated, open-minded, and cosmopolitan person. But it's a certain kind of personality that can work in the Chinese system and succeed that he has that isn't necessarily best suited to the kind of diplomacy that may help China do better than Zhao Lijian. So do you see that changing anytime soon or you know, just going to speed the state of play? No, I, I think it's probably going to uh, continue and get more intense. Um, uh, I don't see uh, China telling its diplomats to cool off anytime soon. So in, in the Caribbean and the same elsewhere, when I speak to people, be it in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in different Caribbean countries or different companies think about doing any kind of engagement with China, they're always very confused by the communism idea and the term communist as, you know, still in the CCP's name. And I know that you had Kishore Mabubani on your uh, podcast uh, most recently, and he was discussing his interpretation where he said, let's just replace communism with civilization, so you have the Chinese Civilization Party, and I, I can see the point of doing that, but I'm not necessarily convinced that, that that's the best way to approach the, the narrative. So I guess I'm curious how you interpret 
communism as it relates to China, but most importantly, as it relates to the CCP now. Well, I think that、um, you know, communism. I think confuses people a lot. I, I I think it might be more helpful to think of China as a, a Leninist state, and to think of Leninism as a set of、uh, practices and 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 guidelines for how to uh, manage uh, a country that is、uh, not democratic and is led by a, a small group of people at the top.、Um, And that the Communist Party of China have perhaps perfected、uh, this Leninist tool of uh, you know uh, this Leninist means of of, of ruling a country,、um, and I, I think thinking of it as sort of Leninist rather than using the word communist does two things. On the one hand, I think it it, it takes out some of the sort of outdated sort of Cold War ideas. You know, China, for example, isn't. Interested in an international revolution, it's not going to establish another Comintern, a communist international. It's not going to,、um, you know, fund、uh, leftist rebels in South America、uh, or in the Caribbean. It's not going to do those things. And I, I think when you use the word communist, particularly in in this hemisphere, in in the United States and in the Caribbean and in, you know in, in in Latin America, that's what The the term brings to mind certainly it does for for Americans.、Um, that's not what they they they're doing, but they are very serious about many of the、um, uh, you know communist texts.、Uh, they are serious about uh, the uh, analyses of history that Marx offers. They are serious about the Leninist toolbook. In terms of of running a country, so I I, I think that、um, it's not uh, true to uh, I, you know I, I disagree with Kishore Mahbubani that you can replace communist with you know some kind of Chinese civil、uh, concept of、uh, of civilization. I think you know there that that exists too. There's. Uh, uh, Methods of governance that the Chinese Communist Party uses that they have inherited, you know, from Chinese history,、uh, that are not specifically communist. But there's a lot about the way they operate that they learnt、uh, from the Soviet Union,、um, and they learnt it very well. And in some ways, they have, you know,、uh, outperformed、uh, their masters. I mean, they're still in charge.、Um, so to not When they say they're communist, to to say that's just a, a label that is outdated, I I think doesn't give you a real picture of what's going on.、Um, I think Xi Jinping is sincere in his belief. You know what he has been repeating as a slogan for many years is you know, buang chu xin like do not forget the original intention of of the communist revolution.、Um, And I think he genuinely sees himself as an inheritor of that, and that the system they're building will, on average, deliver a better life for the average person than other systems. I, I think they genuinely believe that. Yeah, I, I think I, I see it that way as well. So, hmm, since you're from South Africa, do you ever think that perhaps you have a 
different default interpretation of China relative to, let's say, someone who grew up in the USA or even in the, even the UK, perhaps. I suppose so. Uh, you know, coming from South Africa certainly um, made my uh, you know first experiences of China you know seem to me very different, probably from the average American, um, and perhaps have more in common you know with yours coming from you know sort of global south. I guess uh, it also has an impact on the way Chinese people treat you. Um, they've uh, there's a certain um, you know, respect, but also a certain, well, they treat Americans a little differently, I guess. Um, so uh, the kind of questions they ask are different uh, if you come from uh, America <laughs> compared to if you come from South Africa. So, you know, certainly I think, you know, not coming from the United States or from a Western European country, you know, particularly former colonial power like, you know, Britain um, does give you a different point of view. Nonetheless, you know, I live in the US now and um, it feels to me that now more than ever with the tensions between the United States and China, uh, there's always a kind of encouragement to take a side uh, on uh, between China and the United States. And China certainly makes it more and more difficult to take China's side. <laughs> So yeah. So in general, do you think journalism in the in the U.S. has been getting much more nuanced when it comes to the Chinese conversation? Uh, for example, like obviously I read Sub China pretty pretty much every day, and you guys cover a vast array of things. I f can go to the front page and see an article on one side about Xiaoshengro or Mapo Dofu or d detention camps. <laughs> That's us. Mapo Dofu and detention camps and everything in between. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do wonder, how, how have you seen the progress when it comes to journalism in the US um, in terms of China? Do you think you know the other institutions. Yeah, they're doing it pretty okay. Or, or on the other hand, is it like, hmm, they still have a lot of work to do to kind of uh, inject more nuance about the Chinese conversation in, in in America. It's very very difficult to do. I mean, it's difficult to do even for us. But and we specialize on China. But it's much more difficult to do for a, a general, you know, news organization aimed at the general public that's not specialized in a particular field or geography. Uh, because frankly, the Mapo Tofu, you know, it's not news. <laughs> and okay, you can feature it on your recipe <laughs> of the day on the back page of your newspaper, I guess, if you still have a newspaper in print. And, you know, but even if you're the New York Times, you have this great cooking section that mm -hmm. has a lot of China recipes on it. But like, if you don't look in the cooking section, and you don't, search for the Chinese recipes, mm -hmm. you won't see it. You'll only see the, you know, harder journalism, probably. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, you know, that's, that's, I, that, that sort of is, I think, the toughest thing about what I've tried to do with most of my career, which is um, publish and edit and write stuff about China that both contextualizes it, doesn't stereotype it, mm -hmm. but then also doesn't um, make light of you know, the very serious issues that that exist. 
um, you know, that's the challenge. How, 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 how do you convey to the fact that, you know, this country of 1.4 billion people, at any one moment, probably most of them are thinking about Mapo Tofu, just like, you know, the average American is thinking about, a, you know, a Big Mac. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, given the context to fill in the context for somebody who doesn't know China so that they get a sense of, you know, what the country is like, what's going on there, the totality of it, um, uh, without uh, making it... It's very difficult to do that. Uh, it's very difficult not to make the country seem monstrous mm -hmm. when you write and report on some of the monstrous things that are happening mm -hmm. there. Has it been getting better, you think, reporting styles? Um, I think it's, I mean, look, you know, so I, I've been sort of watching reporting on China in English and in, in Chinese and, uh, you know, since the nineties in English, it is much, much better. Just hang on a second. Babe! Hey, can I have some quiet, please? Um, sorry, just, uh, um, so, you know, I, I, I mean, there was so little, uh, uh, ink spilled on China in the 1990s. You know, there was very little coverage of it on, on CNN, uh, which was relatively new at the time, of course. There, there were, uh, you know, the New York Times. The, it, it was difficult to find China stories. Um, so things have improved immensely since then. You know, try, every major, um, at least Western. Well, let me rephrase that. Every major British and American media organization has a fairly decent, uh, you know, crew of journalists in China now. At least when. You know, when they're still allowed to keep them there. Um, and there is plenty of space devoted in uh, the mainstream news media to China. So that that's changed. That's a lot, lot better. Um, you know, uh, on the other hand, uh, it's amazing how uh, little that gets picked up in the mainstream. I mean, I, I find in the US, outside of a circle of people that, you know, care about international affairs or particularly about China, the level of knowledge about it is 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 still very low. So there's a, a tendency now in the US politics to use China as a, a real shock test for pretty much all the things they see bad about the world or even America itself. Where okay no, no manufacturing is China's fault. Uh, bad growth is China's fault. You know, so on. And this panda slugging, as you call it sometimes, do you see this actually persisting? And in this persistence, then you would have this uh, elongation of tensions with China and, and America. Or do you kind of see now the new transition team with Biden that you're going to somehow find a way to actually inject more self-confidence, I would say, in, into into America? Because uh, from the Caribbean perspective, 
the hardest part about engaging with China is actually engaging with the U.S., where that is still the sort of main focus of the Caribbean, and right, rightfully so. But then that the tension between U.S. and China only complicates it with uh, the Caribbean. So yeah, I guess I'm wondering how how do you see these tensions um, evolving or deepening? Uh, now that you have a new administration uh, taking over, well, well, I, you know, I, I, I would hope, uh, I, I would hope that things would happen, as you say, and there are some positive signs in that uh, some of the statements from the Biden trans, uh, transition team and from the Biden campaign, from Biden himself have been about the need to make America competitive um, uh, as an approach to, you know, its place in the world, uh, that America needs to, you know, do better, not blame China. And I, I think, you know, whether it's uh, its own infrastructure, education, uh, you know, encouraging innovation uh, in the United States or, you know, a number of other areas where, uh, the U.S. is competing with China. I, I, I hope that the Biden administration does take a more sort of positive attitude in, in, in terms of, you know, rebuilding the United States itself as a way of dealing with competition from China rather than blaming everything on China because uh, that's the only way it'll actually get better. You know, maybe WTO was a mistake and American companies outsourcing their manufacturing to China, maybe there was a mistake, but, you know, that ship has sailed. And if manufacturing isn't going to be done in China, not all of it's going to come back to the United States. It's going to go to other countries. Well, it might come back to the United States, but it'll be automated. It'll be done by robots. So the jobs won't come back. So, you know, I, I think from many perspectives, uh, one hopes that the United States for itself and for the world will, um, you know, see the need to to compete rather than blame China. Um, so I, I, perhaps the Biden administration will will uh, move on that. But, uh, you know, there is a, a problem in the United States, and some of it I would just blame on Rupert Murdoch. I mean, I think they have the same problem in the, the UK and in Australia on Fox News um, in that uh, there's – much less room for a government to maneuver in terms of China policy when you have uh, uh, news media that will seek to paint a Biden administration as somehow weak and not macho enough when it comes to dealing with China. And, you know, if it's not Biden, it's uh, it's any other Democrat. And uh, it's even Republicans. Uh, you know, th there is this sort of toxicity to the discussion about um, China in the United States that is driven uh, much of the time by, uh, you know, Fox News, essentially. Uh, and uh, it's going to be difficult for the United States to get out of that mindset when you have so many true believers who uh, uh, have started out very suspicious of China and get that message fed to them um, 
you know, every day uh, where they get their news. And, you know, suspicious is perhaps the wrong word. I mean, I I think every country should be suspicious or if not suspicious, at least wary and should think very carefully about its relations with China. But um, there's a tendency in the United States and in Australia to do what, you know, former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd calls, you know, being hairy chested, try, try, uh, to, you know, a sort of macho posture, Trumpian macho posturing, you know, we'll get them with tariffs, we'll ban their tech, we'll do this, we'll clamp down, we'll, you know, keep them out, we'll stomp on them. Um, and that's probably not the best approach, you know, for anybody. Hmm. So, uh, post-pandemic, you know, the magic bullet is shot. We're all past this now. Are, are you uh, optimistic about the relations between the United States and China? Not really. Um, I mean, I, I think we're in for many years of of tensions. Uh I, I think, uh, you know, both countries have a lot of issues to work out. Uh, uh, you know, in a nutshell, um, uh, you know, China wants to be, if not number one, at least equal to number one. And America doesn't really want to let go of its position as number one. And, you know, that might not end up in a Thucydides trap, in other words, in an actual conflict, an actual war. Uh, but I think it pretty much guarantees that uh, this is not going to be an easy relationship uh, in, in the near, near future. Uh, it's 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 both too close in in so many ways. Uh, China and the United States are so involved in one another's economies and you know education systems to a certain extent. Uh, you know and other aspects of life. It's it's very difficult for them to extract. Uh, each other from the relationship, from the mutual hug, the drunken dance, uh, you know. But on the other hand, these these pressures and these tensions are in many ways getting worse and and, and likely to get worse. Hmm. Yeah, that that is unfortunate. Um, but my last question is, uh, Jeremy, what advice would you give someone who is now getting into the China watching field because in the Caribbean it's now become the thing that people are actually getting into. I don't mean the superficial, you know, where's where, who, who's who, you know, that stuff, but like real more nuanced appreciation of, again, lack of a better word, China watching. Um, I guess my advice would be to get concrete about it. Um, you know, I, I think sort of abstract China watching is sort of difficult to say, but, you know, if, if you're concerned about like, you know, fisheries and uh, agricultural imports and exports, then find out everything you can about that particular area and start there. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, if, if China is going to become a big part of, of uh, you know, your career or you know, uh, your interests, learning the language, you know, getting to know at least a little bit of the history uh, and and following the news, you know, of course, I can recommend subscribing to our daily newsletter uh, <laughs> is great. But I think you really start to understand China when you start to follow something in in detail, you know, whether it be, you know, 
the way Chinese casino operators and real estate developers and other entrepreneurs are developing, you know, Sihanoukville in Cambodia. You know, yeah. if you just follow that and you kind of see what happens, you'll start to get an idea of the texture of, 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 of life in China and, and how things can kind of work in, in, in China. Um, you know, you can start to... Uh, follow individual people, individual companies, you know, uh, departments of the government, and start seeing patterns in the way they behave. Um, so, yeah, I guess my advice would be find something specific that you're interested in and find out everything you can about it and follow it obsessively. <laughs> so, thank you very much, Jeremy, for having this conversation. It was really fun talking to you. Thank you, Rashid. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Chanting on a...